our previous episodes, we dealt with under the umbrella of the limited atonement. First, the penal satisfaction theory, which is the Calvinist theory um, that says that God is obligated to punish sin. And so in order to appease his wrath, he put Jesus in our place. And the full logical conclusion of that uh, goes towards a limited atonement. However, we have all these other scriptures that we had to deal with. So the second episode, we said the governmental theory of the atonement seems to pull in all these separate scriptures together and harmonize them better than the penal theory. Today, we're going to be dealing with the universal atonement. First, we're going to deal with who is the atonement for, what is the atonement for as defined by the Calvinists, and then we're going to deal with what is the atonement, the nature of it, and then moving through many scripture verses so that we get a biblical understanding. Thanks for tuning in. So as promised, we are starting with the atonement. Who is it for? What is the atonement for as defined by the Calvinists? We're going to deal with some quotes right at the moment. First, a quote by John Murray. He said, The doctrine of limited atonement, which we maintain, is the doctrine which limits the atonement to those who are heirs of eternal life, the elect. Seton, another man, Calvinist, says, Christ died positively and effectually to save a certain number of hell-deserving sinners on whom the Father had already set his free electing love. Gunn, another Calvinist, he said, The doctrine of limited atonement is simply that the cross of Christ provides a sure, secure, and real salvation for everyone God intended it to save and for them alone. You may listen to this and think, that's not fair. Uh, these are certain men, but this may not be altogether the true Calvinist confession. Well, let's look at the Westminster Confession. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the father hath given unto him. So this also helps us to realize the satisfying justice of God and it only avails for those whom God has chosen, which would be the elect, the unconditionally elect, the predestinated and hence limited atonement. But then people would go even farther back and say, well, that may be the Westminster Confession, but this isn't what Calvin thought. This isn't what he taught. But we go back to the canons of Dort. For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious will and purpose of God the Father, that the quickening and saving efficacy of the most precious death of his son should extend to all the elect for bestowing upon them alone the gift of justifying faith, thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. That is, it was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and those only who were for from eternity chosen to salvation and given to him by the Father, that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them by his death, should purge them from all sin, both original and actual, whether committed before or after believing, and having faithfully preserved them even to the end, should at last bring them free from every spot and blemish to the enjoyment of glory in his own presence forever. So we find this benefit is only to the elect, and it doesn't matter. He'll clean the sins out before and the sins out after um, he's been saved unconditionally from that point onward. By the way, I do believe 
and that if we are to sin after salvation, we must repent and that we can persevere all the way to the end. But I don't believe it's just automatic because of what Christ did back there in history. We need to avail ourselves of what Christ has done. And if we have sinned after salvation, we need to repent and ask him for forgiveness again. It's not like we've completely lost our salvation at that point, but if we continue to go in that direction, we are in a a dangerous situation and troublesome. Uh, That we'll probably deal with more so in the perseverance of the saints at a later time. Uh, The cross, Gunn said, could save everyone if God only intended it to do so. And then another man, Zankius, as God does not does not will that each individual of mankind should be saved, so neither did he will that Christ should properly and immediately die for each individual of mankind. Whence it follows that through the blood of Christ, from its own intrinsic dignity, with sufficient for the with was sufficient for the redemption of all men. Yet, in consequence of his father's appointment, he shared it intentionally and therefore effectually and immediately for the elect only. I say all this to say this listener, this is the Calvinist framework. If somebody does not believe this, they are not a true Calvinist, but a true Calvinist does believe these very things. And so I brought all these separate quotes in there um, and also just Westminster Confession, the Canons of Dort. I pull all that in there just to show you this is the belief of Calvinists, that the atonement of Jesus Christ Though it is effective for everybody, though or though it's sufficient for everybody, I should say, it is only effective to the elect that God predestinated and unconditionally elected from the beginning by his eternal decree. No number can be added to that nor taken away, and it is all to the praise of his glorious grace, as they would say. This is the Calvinistic framework, but is this the biblical framework? Instead of limited atonement, I believe the Bible clearly teaches a universal atonement. And so I want to go into the atonement, uh, biblically speaking, at this time. What is the atonement, first of all? What is the atonement? Before we go into just simple uh, scriptures that have to deal with the the atonement not being limited, I want to understand what the atonement is. What does it do? Um, So the atonement, first of all, is a sacrifice. I've got a bunch of different scriptures, which I'm just going to read off and make comment on a few of them here or there, but uh, the atonement is a sacrifice. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that is Christ. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. So he's a sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Ephesians 5, 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So Christ is an offering, a sacrifice. That's what I've been saying here. Hebrews seven twenty seven. Who needeth not daily as those high priests, speaking of Jesus, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this, Jesus, he did once when he offered up himself, sacrifice. Hebrews 10.10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus was a sacrifice. The atonement is a sacrifice. Hebrews 10.12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. So what is the atonement? The atonement is a sacrifice. 
Jesus gave himself up as an offering for sin, as a sacrifice, as a sin offering. Jesus is our sacrifice. But we need to understand a few more areas of the atonement that help us understand the entire picture. So not only is the atonement a sacrifice, but the atonement is a ransom. And the idea of ransom is not the ransom theory of the atonement where somehow the devil stole everybody away from God and now Jesus has to buy back everybody. Um, It's not that kind of a thought, but rather a redeeming factor. He is ransoming us. He is delivering us from bondage to liberty. He is redeeming us back to himself. And that is the idea of ransom, or at least the biblical idea of ransom. So Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So here we have that redeeming factor, the redemption. He's a ransom. He's, he's redeeming. 1 Timothy 2.6. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He has given himself as a means of redemption, of buying back, of freeing from bondage to liberty. He's ransomed all in his sacrifice. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Here we find again that redeeming quality of the ransom. Uh, Hebrews 9.12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. This is the idea of ransom, redeeming. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Here we find that redeeming quality. So the atonement is a sacrifice. The atonement is a ransom, meaning that redeeming factor from bondage to liberty. The atonement is also expiation. And expiation sounds like a really big word, but it simply means the atonement is for the removal of the guilt of sin and its pollution. Expiation means purging as well. So we find in the scriptures, John 129. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So there's that purging, that removing of the guilt and sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him, God the Father hath made Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So people have come up with some very strange ideas about this, meaning that Jesus literally became sin for us. This is an inaccurate statement when we balance it out with the rest of what scripture has to say. The Septuagint translates this Hebrew word um, that we find here in 2 Corinthians 5.21 in 94 places in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers where a sin offering is meant and where our version translate the word not sin, that meaning our version, the King James Version, translates the word not sin, but an offering for sin. And people may say, well, what does the Septuagint have to do with anything? The Septuagint is a Greek translation of both the Old and New Testament. And the Septuagint is quoted in the New Testament by Jesus and by the apostles. So as far as the authority of the Septuagint is concerned, Jesus believes in the Septuagint. So we should take that into account. But this helps us to understand the wide swath of meaning of words or the specific meaning of them. So when we go back to 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
we, we realize the idea of expiation, the removal of guilt of sin and its pollution when we realize, for he hath made him to be a sin offering for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is properly the understanding of this verse because Jesus does not literally become sin. That is a, a very dangerous thought. Uh, Hebrews 1 through 1, 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the atonement is an expiation, the removal of guilt and sin, it's pollution, it's a purging. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And then later in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here he put away sin. So this is the idea of expiation, the removal of the guilt of sin and its pollution, that purging of it, that taking the sin away idea. So we have there, the atonement is a sacrifice. It is a ransom. It is an expiation. Also, the atonement is a propitiation as the scriptures speak. Now, before I get into some of these verses, it we need to understand the definition of propitiation. It is not scripturally used uh, in this kind of defining me. It's not defined scripturally, I should say, like this, used to pacify wrath as many try to promote that penal satisfaction theory. I would refer anybody to Vincent's word studies. You can probably find him online for free. Um, going through his commentary and comparing uh, biblical words together, it's an, an invaluable resource. And go to Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and see what Vincent's word studies say concerning the word propitiation there. So I'm going to pull some of that out, but if you read the whole of it, you'll be much richer for it. Um, so he said, if we look at the root and kindred words in the New Testament, the same word that is translated here, propitiation, means in Luke 18, 13, God being merciful, in Hebrews 2, 17, to make reconciliation. When we look at the Old Testament usage of the root words and kindred words uh, that have to do with this same um, word of propitiation, the usage in the Septuagint, remember we talked about that a little moment ago, is this, to cover sin, to purge away, to forgive, to pardon, to bear away as a burden, and frequently used as the mercy seat on the top of the ark. So in the case of those kindred verbs, the dominant Old Testament sense is not propitiation in the sense of something offered to placate or appease anger, but atonement or reconciliation through the covering. And so getting rid of the sin, which stands between God and man, the thrust of the idea is upon the sin or uncleanness, not upon the offended party. And that's uh, Vincent's word studies. That was what he had said. And he also said that our translators frequently render the this verb uh by uh, saying reconcile. You can look in Leviticus 6.30, Leviticus 16.20, Ezekiel 45.20. It's the idea of reconciliation. So merciful, uh, God's mercy towards us, his reconciliation, his forgiveness, his pardon, his bearing away sin. That is the real idea of propitiation. So then we go to Romans 3.25 with that idea in mind and with uh, these three verses that I have, understanding it correctly. Whom God hath sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, sent him forth to be that mercy of God, sent him forth as the one to make reconciliation. Um, he is the one who is covering the sins, pardoning them. God has sent forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. First John 2, 2, 
And he is, that is Christ, the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see here, mercy is the dominant tone here, not the offended party, uh, you know, appeasing gods of, of wrath, but the dominant tone is mercy, reconciliation of the entire world, it says. First John 4.10, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here, it's not a mention of appeasing his wrath, but his motivating factor is love. And because he loved the whole world, he sent his son to be the propitiation for people's sins. So there we have the scriptural understanding of propitiation. The atonement is a propitiation. A very similar word that uh, we're going to look at here is reconciliation. And then we look in Romans 5.10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved, excuse me, we shall be saved by his life. Then we look in 2 Corinthians 5.18 through 19, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What a beautiful verse. Reconciliation simply meaning that we were, our sins had separated us from God. We were aliens from God. And then through the death of Christ, it says that he was reconciling the world back to God and not holding their sins against them, but then also giving the ministers of the gospel that word of reconciliation that God is trying to uh, take care of the breach between you two and trying to draw you back to himself to reconcile the broken relationship between men and God. I should say humanity and God. Ephesians 2.16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, Jew and Gentile, having slain the enmity thereby, reconciling. Uh, Colossians 1.20 through 21, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and, uh, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled bringing us back to God, bringing us into full fellowship with him again. Uh, Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So the faithfulness of a high priest is to make reconciliation, to bring the separated parties back together. And this is part of the atonement. So just recapping, what is the atonement? The atonement is the vicarious personal sacrifice of Jesus Christ voluntarily doing so. It is a ransom, that redeeming factor to bring us from bondage to, liber to liberty. It is an expiation to remove the, our guilt of our sin and its pollution, to purge it away. It is a propitiation. It is the mercy of God. It is the means by which he covers sin and reconciles and purges them away and bears them away. It is the, the idea of the mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. He is the atonement and then reconciliation where the offended parties are then, or I should say the separated parties are brought together uh, because of our sins. We have, our, our relationship is breached. We don't have a, a full and open face before God. And through the death of Christ, we have that restored. And now we will be moving on to some scriptures, more specifically speaking about um, just the atonement. And is it limited or is it not? We find things about Christ's voluntary offering for all. Titus 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Christ giving himself voluntarily to all. 
Second Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Christ voluntarily died for all. The offer and the call of the gospel uh, is from God to all, Revelation 22, 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. The call is to all from God. The offer is to all from God. Luke 2, 10. And the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Then the extent of the atonement we find, Hebrews 2, 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. 1 Timothy 4, 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Then we find 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some Calvinists teach through this verse and and another one, and I'll mention that later, uh, that the sufficiency of the atonement is for all, but the application is only to the elect. Go back and read that verse, uh, 1 John 2, 2, you will not find that there. uh, Excuse me, Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. All men, the world, every man, sometimes uh, Calvinists would interpret that as the elect, but that makes other passages confusing, such as 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Does the whole world here mean the elect? John 17, 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. So if he's not praying for the world and the world is the elect, then he's not praying for the elect, but he's trying to help the elect. That doesn't make sense either. John 17, 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world, is this talking about the elect now or is it talking about the world? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So all men, the world, every man is literally speaking about all people. If the effects of Adam's sin affected every man, then it makes sense that the atonement uh, of Christ can affect every man. Then we look at the Father's heart, 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. John 3, 16, the most famous verse, the most quoted verse probably in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is another one of those verses that some Calvinists try to explain away by saying it's sufficient for all, but the application is only to the elect. Once again, this verse in its context teaches nothing of the sort. Uh, If we go to the next verse in John chapter three, uh, verse 17, we read, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the father's heart is that the world would be saved. He's not playing trickery with uh, theological understandings. First Timothy 2, 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel 18, 32, for I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
Also, his sacrificial death is only effective through repentance and faith, we find. Romans 3, and 25. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Unto all and upon all them that believe, the verse says. John 3, 18, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So we find believing is the condition. John 3, 36, he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So here we find a universal atonement, but only effective to those that repent and believe. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. It doesn't say for the elect that shall call upon the name of the Lord, but whosoever. He died for those that may be damned eternally, the scriptures teach us. Second Peter um, 2, well, let's start here with this. I've got a string of scriptures. Roman uh, Romans 14, and I have the reference wrong here, sorry. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died, so people can be destroyed. For, thou, uh, for through thy knowledge, he that is weak perisheth the brother for whose sake Christ died. Uh, so Christ dies can die for people that may perish. Of how much sore punishment think ye shall he be judged worthy who hath trodden underfoot the son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the spirit of grace. So Jesus died for people that may turn their backs on him. Uh, false prophets and false teachers who shall privily bring in destructive heresies, denying even the master that bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So Jesus bought them and then they're on to destruction because of their damnable heresies. So he died for those that may backslide and turn away from God and perish. He died for the false prophets that bring in damnable heresies, leading them to hell. He died for people who may turn their back on God. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? This helps us to realize some people will die. And he said the salvation is for all of them, but some people choose not to. So the atonement is sufficient for all. Matthew 23, 37, and is available to all. Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. He's not only just lamenting Jerusalem's coming destruction here, but Jesus is also um, lamenting the, uh, the, coming de the coming destruction as a result of, of the Jews and the Israelites' unrepentant hearts. John 5, 40, and ye, and ye will not come to me that ye may have life. Why would God say that except that life was available to them, but they chose to have death instead? Also, we find the commands to spread the gospel. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all way, even unto the end of the world. All nations need to know this, Jesus said. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name unto all nations. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was Genesis 28, 14. Ask of me and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 2, 9. 
Jehovah hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So it is to all of the earth. Acts 17, 30 through 31. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Paul preached these words in Athens and he was telling other apostles and such that this was the, the case as well as people who were unbelievers. So how do, do Calvinists try to get rid of their multiplied difficulties with plain biblical declarations as we have just gone through. They say something of this nature. The revealed will of God is an atonement for all people, but and all are told to repent and believe, then they will be saved. But the secret will of God is that the atonement only works for the unconditionally elect. Only the elect will receive the grace to repent and believe. Dear listener, I hope you see straight through this. The Bible teaches no such thing as a limited atonement, but a universal atonement that is sufficient for all people, but only effective to those that repent and believe. Are you a believer? Your next step is to contact me, 570-362-7782. I'd love to talk with you. You can text me there as well and help you along in your journey as you walk with Jesus Christ. You can email us at gods.resistance. I want you uh, to tell your friends about this broadcast. Find us on social media. Go to godsresistance.com. You'll get connected to all the different platforms and resources. But above all, join the resistance. God's resistance. Special thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission for the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International Creative Commons License. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.